The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of the sermon this morning is The Genealogy of Christ Fulfilled. And we're going to do this in two parts. So this will be part one, and this evening will be part two. Uh, this morning I plan to only go through verse 11. Having, I have chosen the book of Matthew because it is a gospel of our Lord and because it is canonically the first gospel of the four. It is the most suitable gospel for bridging between the Old Testament and New Testament. And since I am beginning at verse 1 in a different book of the Bible, I will take some time to introduce Matthew and preach from the first 11 verses and then call you to apply what you hear based on the truths revealed. For application, the two primary points, broadly speaking this morning, for which I urge you to ready your heart is one, turn to God in repentance from sin. Because as you will see, God is faithful to his promises. And two, trust in none other than Jesus Christ for your salvation or your progressive sanctification. Application can take many different forms, and I hope to address some of them along the way. So please listen. Also, this morning, get ready to turn to several texts in the Bible, since we will be using the Old Testament. Okay, so the introduction to the book of Matthew. What is Matthew in the sacred scripture? It's called a gospel. Some of you may know more than others. A gospel is a unique type of literature. The word gospel, euangelion, means good news. It's a theological biography of Jesus Christ, to put it short. The gospels, there are four, are history, biography, and theology. They don't adhere strictly to the same chronology because of the emphasis on their theology. There are four accounts, and they all are addressing the life, death, and resurrection of the biblical Messiah. Their purpose is revealed in John 20. John 20, 31 says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we must read and study and listen this morning according to God's purpose. We're not merely here to learn about the history of Christ's genealogy. We must read it in light of the Old Testament and in light of the cross and the resurrection and the second coming. Also, we must not forget the primary purpose of the Gospels, which is to turn our faith, to turn our gaze, our eyes, our ears to Jesus of Nazareth, God's Christ, the last Adam, the promised son of David, the savior of the world. In Isaiah 9, it says, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined, and that's speaking of him. 
Labor today to see Christ as that great light for your soul that he is, so that you may have life in his name. And brothers and sisters, I thank God for our fellowship in him. And I urge you to keep believing in him, for that life that is yours is from him. He is our eternal life. So why does it say the gospel according to Matthew? Well, Matthew is the author. No one in the early centuries ever attributes the, the gospel according to Matthew to any other apostle. And the earliest relevant comment from Papias said, Matthew then compiled the oracles in the Hebrew or Aramaic language and each interpreted and translated them as they were able. Also internally, Matthew is the author because in 9.9, he is the one that says instead of his former name or his name before becoming a Christian, which was Levi, Mark and Luke use the word Levi when they speak of Matthew. But Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, he shared with his audience his name, Matthew. In Matthew 9 9. Let's look at that. Matthew 9 9 briefly. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Matthew was there when he was converted, when he turned from his sin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a tax collector. Matthew was a Jewish outcast. He was considered by Jewish society, his countrymen, a robber. Tax collectors worked for Rome, the tax Jews who hated Roman rule and made themselves rich off stealing by increasing taxes for themselves. As a tax collector, Matthew was likely trilingual. He likely knew Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. He was apt to write and essentially a secular scribe. However, Matthew was called by Christ to be a disciple. And after he is converted, Matthew hosts a dinner here with many tax collectors and sinners because since they were ostracized from their own society, they, like, they became their own group, their own culture. So he was very familiar with other tax collectors and sinners, and he invites them to a dinner to behold the glory of Christ that they might be saved. Remember this about the author. Matthew writes to reveal Christ for the salvation of many. So who did he originally target when he wrote? Mark writes to believers in Rome, Luke writes to Roman dignitaries like Theophilus and to a wider Gentile audience thereby, and John for the entire Gentile world. But what about Matthew? Matthew writes to his countrymen primarily, to Jews. He's distinctively Jewish compared to the others. 
He does not explain Jewish customs, but assumes the readers knows them. He normally uses the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God to condescend to Jewish sensibilities. Matthew quotes the Old Testament directly 61 times, which is almost as much as all the other three gospels combined. 73 for them combined. Matthew has more interest than the other gospels in how Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Often using the phrase that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet This helps us understand why he began with a genealogy starting at Abraham. We do not gravitate as Gentiles in the 21st century to reading or meditating on biblical genealogies. But remember Matthew's audience. He wants his countrymen, the Jews, who were given the oracles of God and knew the Old Testament so well to see Jesus as their fulfillment It's as if he's pleading as an ambassador for Christ. Brethren, look at his name in the registered genealogies. Matthew is regularly appealing to the Jews by his focus on fulfillment. What are the themes and theological emphases of Matthew? As for Matthew's emphases, he's not only distinctively Jewish and focused on fulfillment, he also emphasizes in his gospel other things. He reveals Christ's teaching on the church. Christ's kingdom as an antithesis to the hypocrisy of Phariseeism. He also heavily focuses on the fact that God's Messiah is rejected by everyone. Even in his birth narrative, he's the one to reveal that he flees to Egypt. Matthew's focused on the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom and heavily focused on the teachings of Christ. His gospel breaks up into five discourses from Christ. Consider the the, um, Sermon on the Mount, very long sermon from Christ. And of course, much on the kingdom of God. Namely, that Christ is the long-awaited promised son and king from David. In the genealogy, this emphasis, emphasis is seen immediately. If you look at Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And if you look at verse 6, and Jesse begot David the king. And this you'll see throughout. So now, with a brief introduction to the gospel according to Matthew, let's look more closely at the genealogy. We must see the glory of God and Christ from these verses. One, God is faithful brothers. God is faithful hearers to fulfill his promise to bring forth his Messiah and to fulfill even this day all the things that he has promised in consummation. Also, too, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Therefore, trust in him for your salvations. The, le- the, last, the lessons we learn are of God's faithfulness and of the identity of the Messiah in redemptive history. So, looking at verse 1. In general, genealogies identify whether or not a professing Jew of the bloodline of Abraham included in the, and included in the Old Testament. 
Also, more specifically, it determines certain qualifications for service and positions in the Old Covenant. Listen to this. I'm going to read Ezra chapter 2, 59 through 62 in your hearing. And these were the ones who came up from Tel Mila, Tel Harsha, and Cherub, Adon, and Imer. But they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Delilah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nicoda, 652. And of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Koz, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. For the Jews, genealogies and being of the bloodline of Abraham was extremely important. It's what included you in the covenant. So, and God had made promises that he would send forth his Messiah from the bloodline of Abraham. So for a Jew who knows his Old Testament very well, for you to point to someone and say, behold, your Messiah, and then to hold up to him a register of the genealogy of him is significant. He, Jesus, or the Christ, must be born of the blood of Abraham and David as God had promised. However, although from their blood, although he was from their blood, he was not to be born into the order as a priest of, Mel- of uh, Aaron, but of Melchizedek. And he was not promised to be the king of typical national Israel, but he was promised to be the king of the true eschatological Israel, to which all the typical Israelites, the nation, were pointed towards and were told to believe in, and as of the same Israel of which we are part for those who believe. Nonetheless, it was promised that from Abraham and David would come the Messiah. Therefore, one function of Matthew is to demonstrate God's faithfulness and Christ's identity as the Messiah. So read that first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first phrase of the gospel according to Matthew is in Greek, biblos geneseos. And You don't see that anywhere else in the New Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint has it, though. So when Matthew had that, what was he referencing or what was he considering when he used that phrase? It doesn't have any articles. It's just Biblos Geneseos. If you turn with me, it's here in Genesis chapter 2. Or I'll start in 5 and we'll go back to 2. So 5-1.
This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And if you had the, the Septuagint, it would read that same, Biblos Geneseos. If you go back to Genesis 2, there's something very similar. Verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. What Matthew is saying to the trained ear is that this person, this history is the next stage in redemptive history. This is the new creation. Um, so some commentators, other brothers would say back in Matthew 1.1 that when he says the gospel or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that that's beginning just the genealogy and they would translate that genealogy. Some people don't translate that genealogy, they translate it story or history. This is the history of Christ. So they would say this is the title for the whole book of Matthew. Which is it? I'm not sure that it's very important. I think it's the title for the whole book. And the reason why is in Matthew or uh, Genesis 5 there, in verse 1, we saw this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. We have a large genealogy, right? Keeps going. And after after Noah's listed, it expands and goes further all the way through the account of Noah in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. And then beginning in chapter 10, we have something very similar. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. It's, it's like uh, I see these as titles or demarcations of sections where history is being discussed and revealed. So when Matthew writes Biblos Geneseos coming from 5.1 where he sees this section and this new creation beginning with Adam, he's saying this is the new creation in the history of the Messiah. What is Matthew making plain? It was that. So God is progressing redemptive history. And the Holy Spirit, too, is the one carrying Matthew to write these things. And think of the Holy Spirit. He's represented by the anointing oil. He's carrying Matthew, the tax collector, along in his brief life to write these same words that this is the Messiah, that this is his history, to reveal that Jesus is the one whom he has anointed. So the Holy Spirit is revealing, this is the one on whom I have anointed with beginning this book of Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew 1. Matthew gives right off the bat, he calls him the Messiah when he says Christ, and then he says the son of David and the son of Abraham. To a Jew, that is significant. Think of the Jews. They 
knew Abraham was their father. They prided themselves on being from Abraham. They were circumcised according to the covenant made with Abraham. They knew that the promises of blessing came through Abraham, not only for their nation, but they looked for the seed promised back from Genesis 3 to come through the bloodline of Abraham. And the same with David, 2 Samuel 7, when God made a covenant with David. And of course, God was making a temporal covenant with David according to the old covenant, but revealed in that covenant, God was promising that the Messiah would come from his bloodline, who is the mediator of the new covenant. So Jews rightly looked for the Messiah to come from David. And let's look now at chapter or uh, verse 2. Okay, you see, we read this genealogy. Look with me at where Dave, or, uh, Matthew got this from. Go to 1 Chronicles. And I'm not going to read all of this, There's, it's, it's long. But I just want you to look at it. Verse 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. It starts with Adam. You see that Adam, Seth, Enosh? Matthew doesn't begin with Adam. He begins with Abraham. That's significant. When we look at a genealogy, when we look at what the gospel authors are writing particularly when they use the Old Testament and they say things are being fulfilled. They have a biblical theological purpose. They have a theology in mind and they're truncating things. He says 14 generations to this, 14 generations to that, 14. And here there's a lot more than that many generations. He's being succinct for a purpose. So we need to look for clues from the context that help us understand his emphasis. And right away, we see he doesn't begin with Adam. Also, what you won't notice much of in this genealogy, which is where Matthew was drawing from, is mention of women. You do see it in chapter 2, verse 4, with the mention of Tamar and daughters. But not with the same frequency that Matthew uses in his genealogy. Also, Matthew pulled from Ruth 4 just to, find, just to show that Ruth in her place in the genealogy. After Zerubbabel, we don't have biblical record, but we knew Matthew had access to the registered genealogies. So, let's turn back to Matthew 1. The gospel according to Matthew is inerrant, historically, and perfectly accurate. But we should pay attention to what he's focusing on and how he's revealing that history to better understand the theology. As we saw with the phrase, son of David and the son of Abraham, Matthew is stating and then demonstrating that Jesus is the promised eschatological, that means end times, son of David, to whom all the other kings from David pointed. Jesus is the promised seed to Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. I want to just read that in your hearing. 
If you will remember what God said to Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last part there is the eternal promise, the gospel promise, the new covenant promise that the seed would come forth from Abraham and it would be by that seed that all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's not because they're related to Abraham. It's because they're related to that seed by whom the blessings come. But there is a promise that and a relationship between the Messiah and Abraham and it's by blood. The Messiah will come from the bloodline of Abraham. And whether or not you're by blood doesn't matter because what matters is, are you related to the son of Abraham, his Messiah, by faith? Are you a son of the faith of Abraham? If you go back to Matthew 1, Abraham begot Isaac. And these should be familiar to you. These are uh, very pivotal characters of the Old Testament that are quoted over and over and are referenced as the fathers. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Notice he doesn't say the 12 tribes of Israel. He just says and he begot Judah and his brothers. Why is he focused on Judah? It was because God made another promise in between Abraham and David that it would be through Judah that would come the Messiah. What Matthew wants the Jewish hearer and us by, by being inscripturated to hear and understand is that God is fulfilling his word, that he has fulfilled it. So in Genesis 49.10, I'll just read it to you. When Jacob at his death was blessing his sons, he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes. And I understand it to be a reference to the, to the Lord. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So Matthew is saying, Jacob begot Judah and just as God promised that Shiloh would come through Judah, here comes Christ. Matthew is not revealing anything new, right? This is not foreign to a Jewish hearer. But Jews like Matthew, they knew this, and they looked to Judah to lead in battle. They knew God had chosen Judah throughout their history. However, what was different and new for a Jew was that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one that was promised. The Jew would need to know, and we also, that it's this person in history that we must put our faith in. If you look back at the genealogy now, Judah begot Perez and Zerah begot uh, Zerah by Tamar. Tamar begot Perez and Hezron, or I'm sorry, Perez and Zerah were begotten by Tamar. I know it's begot by Judah, but Tamar is who Judah copulated with. 
So I want to point out that because there's one of the first, that's the first woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. He's also going to mention later Rahab and Ruth and later by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And then he's going to get to Mary. And it's interesting because that's not common for Jewish genealogies. So if you will remember what happened with Tamar, it starts in Genesis 38. And let me just read to you some of those texts. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So Judah's son was wicked, the Lord judged him, and he died. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her, Tamar, and raise up an heir to your brother. So Onan, go raise an heir to your brother's name who's now dead with Tamar. But Onan knew that his, the heir would not be his, so he refused to let his seed go into her. And therefore, the Lord killed him. And then Tamar went to Judah and wondered, being his former daughter-in-law, will you give me a husband? Will I be used and able to bring forth seed for your name in this household? And Judah said, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. He's a young boy. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in his father's house. So she's waiting on him. He's not, he's not being faithful. Judah is sinning against Tamar, and he has no intent of giving uh, Shelah to her. So in the process of time, she knows that she's being neglected and essentially lied to. So she hears of Judah's wife dying and Judah traveling in his mourning and then dresses herself up like a harlot and knows enough about Judah to know where to meet him and how to dress to get to lie with him. And then Judah does. He goes into her not recognizing her. He lies with her. And then she forced, she requires him to give a pledge for the time he spent with her. And finally, he sa- uh, she says, please determine, uh, or he says, what, will you give me a pledge till you send it? What pledge shall I give you? Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave it to her. Later, she becomes pregnant with the seed that he was neglectful to allow her to, to have. And he finds out she's pregnant, right? What does he say? Verse 24, Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. She was clever. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. That's like your wallet or your license. Yeah. (laughs) 
You know it's yours. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. Think of the impossibility for man to even attempt to preserve a seed line considering this account. Unknown to Judah, who had the promise, his former daughter-in-law would mother his son through whom would come the Messiah. I want to wait more to make an inference on that about the faithfulness of God and call you to apply the truth here. However, note, God is working in history to preserve his promise despite the awareness of men and any of their efforts. I was thinking we don't even think much about genealogies because they're strangers to these people. Even though we know we ought to and it's the word of God. And yet our hearts are not warmed until we, under conviction and by faith, begin to meditate according to God's grace. But the point I'm making there is that you weren't there. I wasn't there. We weren't born. And even now, we don't care much. But God is faithful. He's there. He's acting. He's working. He's preserving, according to his decree, his Messiah. And back in uh, Matthew, Perez and Zerah were begotten of Judah by Tamar. They were twins. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Again, he mentions another woman. I'm focusing on things that are characteristic or distinct of his genealogy. There's a thread there. There's theology to to see from it. If you will remember Rahab, she's actually, this is showing that genealogies are not going to give every single person in the genealogical record. Uh, Rahab was perhaps 400 years prior to David. And in here, it just goes, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. So there's more people in there. When When the Bible says begot here, you could say fathered, and fathered isn't directly your child. It's ancestor. So why Rahab, right? She was a Canaanite. Did you know Tamar was a Canaanite? Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who, had, who was saved by faith and hid the Jew spy, Jewish spies in Jericho before it was conquered in Joshua chapter 2. God preserved his seed by her. It's so unexpected and messy to men's understanding. But behold Yahweh. He is unchanging. See his name and his faithfulness here and his grace. Behold the grace of God. See his wisdom in fulfilling his promise through unexpected means. 
Just as men look at this and they're like, I would have never have guessed that. It's totally unexpected to our sensibilities and our so-called wisdom. And in that, God reveals his name to be glorious. He says, I am powerful. I can, he can do anything. He can bring forth his Messiah from a prostitute. It humbles our pride and our self-righteousness to think, I would never do that. Also, he says, by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman who married into a rebellious family under Elimelech. Moabites were the product of incest of Lot and his daughter from Genesis 19. Yet here in the, here in the book of Ruth, which we're not looking at, God saves her soul for she has faith in his promise. And she returns to Jerusalem with Naomi and in time by God's providence, she becomes a mother, so to speak, of Christ under Boaz's kinsman redemption. Next in the genealogy, we have David the king. That other genealogies that we saw, don't, don't say it that way. David the king. Matthew is, is highlighting to his Jewish audience, to us, that the Messiah promised of the king, David, has come forth. He wants to focus on David's kingship. There's a, a focus by the Jews to the Messiah being the son of David. If, uh, let me read to you Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and an understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This rod that comes forth from the stem of Jesse is Christ. He is a branch growing out of the stump of David, cut down by the, the exile. Where's David's line when Jesus Christ arrives? Nobody can clearly identify. Even when they have the restoration coming back from the exile, we have Zerubbabel, who is of the line of David, and he's just made a governor. He's not even a king. So God had cut down that line but preserved it. And out of it is, here comes the, the branch. Here comes the, the rod shooting out of the stump who is the, the Messiah. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even say who had been the wife of, in the NKJV that's in italics. It just says in the original, by her of Uriah. Matthew isn't even saying Bathsheba. and She was known to be an adulteress from that account in history. But Solomon came forth from her. And Matthew isn't even saying her name. He wants to be very clear that Solomon, who is the father of the Christ, came from an adulterous relationship. And Uriah was a Hittite. You see Gentiles, you see sin, 
you see this mess of men not being faithful to the Lord and God all along from generation to generation and from Abraham to Christ is about 2,000 years. People in the beginning don't know the people came later. Nobody could do this. And when they were carried away into captivity to move along, many of their hopes were dashed, but God gave them prophecy through various prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they were restored in time, but when they saw the the temple in its lesser glory compared to its former glory, it only led to an anticipation of waiting for a greater fulfillment, knowing that this is not what has been promised. And though they didn't have the most accurate theology that we can have looking backwards with New Testament revelation, there was this full hope of the Messiah to come. And Matthew was stating by his genealogy, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So in application, first of all, let me state this lesson that you should learn from this first half of the genealogy is that God is faithful. Brothers and sisters and visitors. He is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should ever change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? He said he would bring forth his Messiah and he brought him forth through this genealogy. Over 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. No one can stop God from fulfilling his promises. Sin cannot stop him. Time cannot stop him. The weakness of creation, the weakness of man cannot stop him. Death cannot stop him. We even say now, where is your sting, O death? Satan cannot stop him. Yet, we don't trust him. And for those of you that have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you count him as a liar. And you don't see the glory of his faithfulness in a genealogy. But you who are double-minded, he will abundantly pardon you. For he calls you by the gospel of his son to be saved. He says in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you are a child of God, Recall that God is your rock in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Remember that it is he who does not change. 
It is his word that will say that by Christ saves you. Meditate on his faithfulness. Why do you trouble yourself? As if somehow you can uh, live without him, that you can overcome sin without him, that you can neglect him and the means of grace. And second, uh, from this text, the genealogy, considering Matthew's purpose, remember that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. There is no other. There is no other Messiah. It doesn't matter what other people may, and it might not seem very uh, necessary to convince yourselves because you believe in him already. But rest assured that Jesus of Nazareth from the word of God and this genealogy attests to you that he is the promised anointed Messiah. He was born approximately 2,000 years ago in a little town who grew in wisdom and in stature. He performed signs from heaven like healing the blind. He never sinned. He received audible testimony from God. He spoke the truth of the word and was wrongly crucified but righteously punished by God and resurrected. He, this man, is the Christ. And by his genealogy, God testifies that here is the Messiah, the anointed son of David, king of kings, by whom you will be judged. Therefore, trust in him. Don't trust in anything else, anyone else for your soul. Don't trust in Uh, any false Messiah, any false hope. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the new life that can only come by being in union with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the abundance of revelation that your son Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. We praise you that you call us to believe in him and to believe in your word. We praise you, Lord, that not only do you call and command and reveal, but you send forth your spirit that we might turn from our sins, having a new heart and put our faith in him. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, Lord, and praise you for all the attestation of his name. May you be glorified in our lives and in our hearts from this uh, revelation. Amen.